Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. You'll find the passage in your worship folder and in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along there, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let's hear God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do please sit down. Well, it's good to be with you on this uh, Palm Sunday. Obviously, in case you hadn't noticed, on Palm Sunday, we uh, celebrate by waving palm branches. Have you ever asked yourself why? Um, obviously, we know that in the Gospel account, one of which we had read out a little bit early in the service, that uh, they waved palm branches at that point. But why did they? What was its meaning? In many ways, it goes right back to the beginning of the story of the Bible. In uh, Genesis, in paradise, it is thought there are many beautiful trees, among them palm branches. And so, on the temple, when the temple was built, inscribed on the walls of the temple were palm branches to remind God's people of God's presence and His blessing. Later on in the biblical story, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated with waving of palm branches. It's hard to get a sense of exactly what a big deal some of these feasts were. Perhaps for Chicago people, you might like to imagine when the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup. It's that kind of exuberance and celebration. It's a huge parade. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, palm branches were waved. Later on, they became um, on the coin symbolizing the people of Israel. And so we're a little like waving the flag, perhaps. When the city of Jerusalem was um, threatened and indeed invaded and sacked, taken over and destroyed, when it was liberated uh, by the popular movement of the Maccabees, they, in celebration, re-entered Jerusalem waving palm branches. And so when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the pilgrims wave palm branches, they are, as it were, waving the flag They're opening the doors to Jerusalem, to its liberator. So we have palm branches. But of course there's another aspect to Palm Sunday, which is that Jesus came in riding on a donkey. We don't do that at Cottage Church, maybe we should one year. (laughs) 
Why did he ride on a donkey? Well, in some of the gospel accounts, the reference is given to this passage in Zechariah to explain. So the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah, we know actually fairly precisely when he was writing because at the beginning of the book, he tells us by reference to King Darius, it is 518 to 520 around there. And the prophet Zechariah is encouraging God's people in their work of rebuilding the temple. Zechariah is an extraordinary book, and Zechariah was an extraordinary man. He had eight visions in one night. It's pretty good going. And that's the first uh, eight chapters of the book. And then from chapter 9 through chapter 14, there are two oracles or two sermons, two prophecies, literally a, a burden, that is a, a message given to him from God that he was called upon to, to preach. And in this verse, we're in the middle of the first of those oracles, long, long interpreted by the rabbis, by all the um, hermeneutic interpretive grids that uh, the teachers of the Bible had down through the years as a messianic prophecy. One day a king would come, the Messiah or the Christ, both meaning anointed, both referring to the king, see the king is coming, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, One day, this Messiah would come, this king would come, and he'd ride on a donkey. Why? Well, let's find out, shall we? So we are called upon here to rejoice that the king is coming, for he is righteous He has salvation, and he's a humble king riding on a donkey. The king is coming. Of course, when we say king, we are thinking of an authority figure. So again, think of the Black Hawks celebrating in a parade downtown Chicago. Think of that kind of exuberance and energy and excitement. The Stanley Cup is lifted, and everyone cheers. Well, today it's hard for us to imagine such a strong degree of excitement would be associated with a king, let alone an authority figure. If you wanted to get uh, college students on a secular campus really excited and to generate a sort of popular movement, you would not announce everywhere that an authority figure is coming. Why were they so excited that a king was coming? Well, you have to think of Jerusalem, a city that was occupied by the Romans. Here was a king coming to set them free. No longer in the context of Zechariah would they be dominated by King Darius in the great empire of the time, no longer would they be dominated by the other little small 
fiefdoms, kingdoms, princedoms around Israel from Gaza and elsewhere. No, their king would come and he would set them free. Imagine yourself in, as it were, Syria. In a city that had been bombed and devastated. There was anarchy and chaos and suddenly at last a king was coming to set you free. I don't know what it is that you sense that you need to be set free from. Maybe there are certain habits. You've tried in your own strength over and over again to be set free. There's a king, and he has the authority to free you. For this king, Zechariah says, is righteous. He's a good king. Now, if it's hard to believe that an authority figure is a good idea, it's even harder for many people today to believe that God is good. We are faced with traumas in our world. We hear the news of what happened recently to those Coptic Christians in Egypt. We're faced with wars and rumors of wars. And we're told that God is God and is in charge of everything and that he is good. It is a hard thing for us to accept. One of the many different ways to Understand that God is righteous, that are popularly put forward. One of the most common is to ask ourselves the reverse of the question. If God were not God, and if he were not good, how would you explain all the beauty in this world? How would you explain the green grass, the acts of kindness, the food at brunch in a moment? If God were not good. And so the reality is, the truth is, that we are faced with a conundrum. That God is good, that God is God, that he is in charge, and there's much that's good in this world, and there's much that is challenging and evil. How are we to put the two together? But there is an even greater conundrum, an even greater dilemma, and that God is truly righteous. And we are not. Maybe there is some area of your life which you desperately desire to be set free from. Maybe there is a sin. Yes, in church, we should sometimes use that word sin. Maybe there is a sinful reality in your life. In fact, not maybe, there is. For I know you, for I know myself, and I read the Bible, and we are all sinners. And yet God is righteous. And the king comes, and he is righteous. And we are not. And that is a far greater conundrum and dilemma 
And so the prophet Zechariah does not only proclaim the king is coming, that he is righteous. It also tells us one other thing, which is that he is saving. He has salvation. He is a saving king. Well, here is the great mystery that the prophets constantly searched into. How is it that God who is righteous would rescue his sinful people? How is it that God who loves us so much could at the same time be a just God who's coming to set what is wrong right? And how can he save us? And so we enter the week of Easter and behold the king this Palm Sunday coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey as we will see in a moment and its significance who rides into the temple, judges the temple for its fake religion, and not everyone rejoices at his arrival, but some will crucify him. And in crucifying him, they are fulfilling the prophecy long ago giving that the righteous king would also be a saving king, a suffering king, a servant king, a dying king, and in the end, a risen king. Perhaps you're here looking for salvation. Surely our world is. The presidents of the great countries meet together to try to figure out what to do about North Korea or wherever else is the current hot spot. Do we not need a king, a good king, a righteous king, a saving king? One final aspect is most surprising of all with which we began, and that is that he comes in on a donkey. How extraordinary. As I say, this text was always thought to be a messianic text by the rabbis, and it was one with which they wrestled. In one fairly well-known instance, a great king of Persia known as Sopha rather teased the rabbis about this text saying, could you not find a war horse for your king? Does he have to come in on a donkey? To which the rabbi is said to have replied, oh, that donkey will be multicolored and very impressive with all sorts of, sort of fancy things to it. Don't worry, it'll be a special donkey. Which is entirely to miss the point. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. No other religion would do this. Muhammad rides on a camel. The great conquerors ride on war horses. The presidents of our world turn up in their huge motorcades with their outriders and police sirens going. But imagine, if you will, that it was announced that the president was coming to Wheaton, what would you expect? If you say too much out loud, you might annoy your neighbor about politics. What kind of thing would you expect that would happen? The motorcade? The police? The line of cars? The press? Imagine instead if the President of the United States turned up to Wheaton riding on a bicycle. 
Not a war horse, a donkey. Humble. Humble. Of course, that's a great challenge for all of us, isn't it? This king that we worship is the humble king. And we who are followers of Jesus are to resonate with that humility. As someone once said, if you want to be somebody to others, you have to be nobody to yourself. Not to have the fake humility that always puts yourself down so others can elevate you. But the true humility that does not think about yourself but elevates others so that they might be praised. It is a challenge. What a difference it would make if God's people, if we Christian people, were so self-effacing. Not to be unwilling to assert the gospel or proclaim the gospel, but freed from self-consciousness to be so filled with Christ and his spirit and his gospel that we are out there telling our friends about the gospel unafraid of what they think of us. But of course, the humility of Jesus here is not primarily an example for us to follow, though it certainly is that. It is a message for us to receive. The humility of Christ is the key that by the work of the Spirit of Christ opens the heart of the hardest cynic. This king has not come to dominate you. He has not come to destroy you. He's come to serve you. And save you. Would you rejoice in him? He who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing and became obedient even unto death. Death on a cross. Even going into Jerusalem on a donkey. Such a funny, hard thing for us to grasp, isn't it? This humility of this royal person, King Jesus. The story is told of the uh, great ocean liner, the uh, Queen Mary. Transatlantic, huge, luxurious ship, the Queen Mary. Named after one of the queens of England. Originally, it is said, it was intended to be called the Queen Victoria. But this is how its name was given. The makers of the ship went to George V, the husband of the then Queen Mary, and said to George V, we have decided to call this next ship after the greatest queen of England, meaning Queen Victoria, to which he quickly inserted, my wife will be so pleased that you're calling it Queen Mary. We so rapidly insert ourselves. Our agenda, our pride, our arrogance, our way, or the highway. We are so threatened, like the Pharisees were, by a king who's come to save. 
because we feel so righteous in ourselves. But this day, this Palm Sunday, the extent of your rejoicing will be measured by the extent of your worship of this humble king. If you want to rediscover joy, join the pilgrims waving their palm branches and worship the king on a donkey. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us this morning to do that, to rejoice greatly. To accept you as our king. To see in your humility the King who's come to save us and to receive you, Lord, as our King. And so we pray that we will rejoice. In the name of Jesus, amen.